And today we have a wonderful guest. And before I introduce her, I'd love to give a shout out to everyone on the internet that has been watching Bandersnatch. And that is the latest episode of Black Mirror. And if you haven't watched it, do yourself a favor because it's one of those play action uh, it's games. It's very interactive. And it determines who you are as a person when you make that decision. So everyone has a different ending. It is so much fun. And I wanted to give a shout out to that show because it's apropos for our guest today. Uh, we are going to talk about if Rosa Parks was alive today. You know, what would be her opinion? How would she uh, matriculate throughout our social diet, uh, our social interface that we have all over? It's just so different from generations ago. But we have an expert about that that can talk in greater detail than we can. Uh, without further ado, I'd like to welcome from the wonderful city of Paris, Nita Wiggins. Welcome to the podcast, Nita. Thank you, Hamza. Hello. Hello. Good to see you. Good to see you as well. Thanks for being here. Yes, thanks for being here. And it's always interesting. Hello, David. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's always interesting to talk about would what would it be like if, if these people would live in today's times? Because uh, one interesting question that I've been asked in the business world, I'm sure you've been asked, and just socially, people ask if you can if you can have dinner with three different people from history, who would you have dinner with, right? And you're kind of putting your eyes in the back of your head, doing recall or remembering you being asked that question. And I'm sure we can kind of go over some of that in some detail. But before we get too deep in the weeds, uh, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about yourself and how uh, my sisters live overseas and they're always asked how do they get over there. So uh, I'd like for you to talk a little bit about uh, your background and how you wound up to live in that beautiful city. Okay, well, sure. I, I like that question. And, uh, and Hamza, I imagine you've heard many different answers. <laughs> so here's mine. Okay. Uh, I was living my American dream. Uh, I had uh, set out a vision, I reached it, and then as I saw that the American dream I had my grips on was slipping away, I, I had to start thinking professionally, what can I do to transfer, to transfer myself to a place where I would be happy, where I could still meet my goals and have a fulfilling life? And fortunately, I had come to France for the Tour de France four times to cover it. And I decided during one of those visits that this could be a place I would try to recreate my life and go from having an American dream to having a world dream that I could immerse myself into. So it was a career transition, but it really also was a way to save myself because I felt I was sinking, trying to hold on to my, my version of the American dream. I love it. And so I, I do want to spend some time there. I, I, it's a little close to my heart. Like I mentioned, I had uh, two sisters, or actually one sister now, one passed away uh, two years ago. Uh, one lives in Barcelona, or that one lived in Barcelona, and my twin sister lives in Mallorca. And so <laughs> they were, uh, you have, we have this conversation um, in our family, but from what you're saying as well, as far as the American dream. Um, I do want to stay there for one second because we're going to talk about Rosa Parks. And at, at, at the time, maybe a, a generation or two, the definition of the American dream is a moving target. So if you could talk about what was the traditional American dream, quote unquote, and how you may have reached that and decided, is that all there is? 
<laughs> yeah, it's a scary thing to have a dream and then to achieve it because then what do you do when you're in your dream? But I was eight years old when my version of happiness appeared in front of me and in front of my eyes. I, I would watch a lot of sports on television with my father and I would specifically watch the NFL, pro football. And I was so enthralled in the games and the, the idea of preparation uh, and success that I saw in sports that I wanted to somehow get involved in that. As a girl, I knew I would not be a football player and at the same time, I noticed how my dad was so enthralled with competition and success. And so I decided I would become one of those analysts, one of those journalists who was right there in the heart of the NFL. And for me, that meant the Dallas covering the Dallas Cowboys. Zoom, 30 years later, I am hired in Dallas, Texas. <laughs> You can't give me a thumbs down on that. This is eagle country over here. I'm sorry. I can't even apologize. <laughs> well, congratulations on your Super Bowl, by the way. <laughs> but for me, the excellence of competition seemed to be right there in Dallas. And so I decided at age eight that I would get to Dallas. I would somehow get hired. I would prepare and with my excellence, with my skills, I would live and work there as a reporter covering the Dallas Cowboys. And I did get there. I was hired in 1999 and worked there for nine years at the Fox TV station that broadcast the Dallas Cowboys games. So I was in heaven. I was interviewing Tony Dorsett, Roger Staubach, Rayfield Wright, Troy Aikman, Dion Sanders, all the people you in Philadelphia don't want to hear about. <laughs> <laughs> I will say for my for my sister that passed away, you know, shout out to her. She uh -huh. uh, and, and, and for college, we're all Gator fans. And so yeah. when my sister, middle sister was in school, she was in school with, um, oh man, I forgot his name. Emma Smith. What's that? Emmett Smith. Yeah, she went. She took some classes with Emmett, so that was, you know, her big thing and in, in cheating yeah. on each other's tests. Wink, wink. <laughs> wink, wink. Right, right, right. Of course. So it it was a it was a lovely life. I was enjoying what I was doing because I had reached uh, that pinnacle. Uh, but I started getting negative evaluations from my managers. You know, you're not doing enough. You're not breaking stories. But this is not true. Of course, I say it's not true. But the, the, the evidence is on the videotapes and the interviews of people I did in their homes and this and that. The problem was I, I was turning 40. And in America, it's a tough thing sometimes for a woman to continue in a coveted position age 40 and above. And, and so, as I say, the dream was slipping away. I continued to look for some new um, accreditation, some new skill. I started studying French. I wrote proposals to come to the Tour de France because Lance Armstrong from Dallas was competing in it. And, and I was broadening what I felt I could bring to the journalism table, but none of it worked. And, and as I realized that I was not going to be able to finish my professional career in Dallas, I started setting my sights on something else. And for me, that was to teach journalism in a francophone country. 
because I had learned French by that time. And I had traveled to Senegal, a French-speaking country. I went there to cover a basketball story that I proposed. And so suddenly, what had been my vision of my American dream was too small for me. I wanted a world to grab at and a world to touch and a world to influence. And I can say that I am so happy and satisfied in the journalism job that I have now because I have, have had students from over 20 countries, probably even 25. I, I don't want to exaggerate. So I'll say at least 20 countries. And they leave my university where I teach and they have a taste of the strategies I created and used that I was able to, uh, to build my own career with. So, so that, that's my transition. That's when my American dream didn't fit me anymore, not only because I was somehow outside of the demographic had the right to do that, but I created a whole new demographic to pursue. And, and I'm living that now. Awesome, awesome. And, and so I do want to say that congratulations on that. And, and <laughs> Thanks. One of our first podcasts we did was uh, Godwinks. And so we gotta we subscribe to the idea that there's no accidents, and so it kind of leads into the whole Rosa Parks thing as well because when uh, at their time they couldn't even imagine where we are going to be in 2019, just like mm -hmm. we can't imagine what people that follow us are going to be like in 2049 per se. Oh no, no way. Right, and so uh, when you were talking, it made me think of your counterpart Pam Oliver. Uh, because mm -hmm. Pam, you know, since it is Sunday and football and all, go, and we do play the Bears today. So, <laughs> and the Cowboys yeah. won yesterday, so it's all good. But so Pam was having the same issue, and we we saw that on a national scale. That, like you said, from a demographic uh, viewpoint, she had mm -hmm. a plum job, and she was kind of upset that she had to go to these secondary, tertiary markets. That she, you know, it was kind of like. You climb the ladder so you don't have to do that anymore, you know, and now you yes. have to kind of go back and you're wondering, is this my lot in life? And some people stop there and you actually took that as a challenge for yourself. You know, shout out to your dad as well. Is like, what can I be my best self and take it to the next level? So yes, thank, thank you for mentioning my dad, because when I was a kid, I, I started watching NASCAR at age four. I was watching NASCAR before Dale Earnhardt Sr. was a full-time driver. Wow. But I was watching because my dad was watching and I was sitting at his elbow. And then I started watching baseball and football. And my dad would ask me about the games. I was analyzing the NFL before I was adding fractions at school. And I had followed NASCAR also from that point, you know, so early on. And so my dad homeschooled me to be a sports journalist, but we never would have imagined that's what he was doing. But he would ask me what I thought about the game, who would win, and I would tell him why, and he'd either agree or disagree, but then he'd use his grown-up words to clarify. And so the next time when he'd ask me, I'd use his grown-up words. So yeah, I started this career uh, pursuit so long ago, but it was because my dad engaged with me in just the right way. 
and, and my father was an instructor. He was an instructor at Fort Gordon in the Signal Towers division, you know, in communications. So he was an instructor. And little did, did we know that his give and take with me was setting me up to do exactly what I wanted to do. So talk about God winks. That's definitely a God wink. Absolutely. I do want to ask you, I know David's chomping at the bit here. Uh, I do want to ask you about, as a fellow educator, Ray, and I don't have children, but there is a school of thought of some parents that, oh, baby, look at the baby smile. And there's others that talk to the child as an adult. And it's in the school of thought is that you increase their capability a lot sooner when you speak to them in that manner. And it seems like you're proof positive that your dad didn't coddle you as a little girl, daddy's little girl, you know what I mean? And so right. you, you actually took it to the next level and you probably surprised a lot of people. They, they yeah. did, let's talk a little bit about that because we're, we're, we're intertwining the whole Rosa Parks thing. Um, from, from my standpoint, we're looking at it from a, a, a gender standpoint, but we're also yes. looking at it from a professional standpoint. And so, oh, you go over here with pom-poms and cheerlead for us over here. And you're like, no, you, you're missing the whiteouts. And you're calling out plays that the little boys, yes. your counterparts, can't even understand. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, I do have to say, though, that I love dance. And when the cowgirls, the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders, uh, premiered in 1972, I was like, wow. The whole presentation, the whole marketing, the whole razzle-dazzle, is what drew me to Dallas. And so it, it was the, the sports for sure, but the overall presentation. And having lived and worked there in Dallas for nine years, it still ranked very high for me. You know, the, there was not much off of the, the, the shine was not off the star when I was there. So it, it, all, it all came together for me. I, I've, I've lived a fortunate life to have had something to pursue to have reached it, and then to have outgrown it to the point where now I can train myself to do other things and then teach those skills. So I've, I've had a blessed life. I do want to actually ask you about that transition, uh, and I'd love to get your opinion from a historical standpoint. So in 1492, you know, we, we have the whole Christopher Columbus uh, ideal Right. And at the time, people thought that the world was flat. And so I, I asked people from time to time that in, in 2019, a lot of people in the states still consider the world flat and that if you know that nothing exists outside of the United States, if you leave the United States, you're going to fall <laughs> off into the abyss. And you're proof positive that there's life outside of the U.S. bubble. <laughs> so I want to get your take on those viewpoints. Yeah, there is life outside of the, the bubble. There is a fascinating woman. I, I found her profile on online just this week. Her name is Evita Robinson. And you guys might already know her, but she has something called No Madness Travel Tribe. And when I first heard it, I thought it was like No Madness. But it's like No Madness. Ah. Travel Tribe, and it's a travel group of women of color. And in her interview, she said her group is now 21,000 people worldwide. And so when this group of ladies gets on an airplane to go somewhere, you can expect that there will be a lot of fun. <laughs> 
And so who would have imagined back in the time of Rosa Parks that 21,000 women of color would have the means and would have the vision beyond their neighborhoods to go and explore other lands. So who knows where we're headed? I, I can't tell you what we'll look like in 30 years as a civilization. But that travel group gives me such a, such a, I don't know, such an excitement about every seg segment of the population jumping out and enjoying life. Absolutely. And since we're giving shout outs, I, I have to give a shout out. Uh, yesterday, there's no accidents. And so I had turned on the television because I'm binging on a show that I don't want to talk about right now. But <laughs> don't tell. When I, I was just, the t television had turned on and there was an infomercial on, right? Mm -hmm. And during this infomercial, they introduced uh, Heather Woolery Lloyd. I don't know if you know her or not. I can't place her for the moment. No, okay. maybe I do. She's a black dermatologist woman. And they were talking about, um, and I think this is appropriate when we're talking about what could Rosa Parks imagine. She mm. is a dermatologist, and they had the spectrum of women, so they had, uh, of women of color. So they mm. had Morpheus, or we know Lawrence Fishburne's wife, uh, she's in suits. They had uh, the, the Spanish woman from uh, CSI Miami. They had Kim Coles, who's a comedian. And they just mm. had, a, uh, it was just, I had to I had to keep watching it, even though it was makeup. I mean, there were so many beautiful women on the screen, like no guy would turn at this point. And they were saying, like you were like you were, like you were hinting at, that for decades they're they're in the industry or they're just regular people, and they wanted mm -hmm. makeup or, or skincare, and the markets just didn't speak to them. So they decided, hey, we're going to take it amongst ourselves and have this product for us. And so yes. like you were saying with this nomad travel, that's phenomenal. And that is a beautiful thing with our interaction. You're in, you're in Paris right now and we're speaking to you. So, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the sky is, the, is limitless as to where we can go with this. And part of it, I, I love talking about Mrs. Parks because when I interviewed her in 1988, I was working for a television station and I was a one woman band. So I shot my own video and I did my own interviews. But I thought I would take a few moments before the program began to walk over and say something to Mrs. Parks. And it was amazing. We stood almost eyeball and her face resembled my grandmother on my father's side. When we spoke, her southern accent sounded like that of my grandmother on my mother's side. So here I am with the mother of the civil rights movement, and I feel that my grandmothers are there with me. And, and actually, they were. You know what I mean? Absolutely. But I feel like I connected to them through her because her storyline and the limits on what she could do in society were the same as my grandmother's. And so before the ceremony, I asked I said, may I give you a hug? And I said, I never do this, but may I give you a hug? I had nothing else to offer. And we hugged. And I remember that we were just breathing their hearts with our hearts near each other. And I felt maybe I needed to let go of her because maybe I had been aggressive in doing what I did. So I let go and she was still holding me. And so now when I these women who are doing things everywhere it's because somebody 
somewhere back in our personal histories, someone we encountered, gave us something. And we want to keep that light shining or we want to to blow the next generation a, a little farther down the road. We want to do something. And so that is what Ms. Parks does for me when I think of her and that day. And these women who travel, uh, Mae Jameson, who we know travel to out of space, you know, these women, when, when we're doing something, it's because we're taking our ancestors or even people we never met forward. and. And I'm one of the people who's driven to keep going forward, to not, not um, let some wall <laughs> get in the way, not let some limitation stop what I want to take forward from people who gave me something. Okay. I was just going to ask you, Nita, how did the uh, interview with Rosa Parks come about? Has she been on your radar as far as someone that you wanted to interview or... Was it someone else's initial idea? You know, uh, I kick myself all the time about the interview. You know, the event before was fantastic for me, but the interview. I was working for WTVM in Columbus, Georgia, and the assignment manager called me that morning and said, hey, you're interviewing Rosa Parks this morning. She'll be in Tuskegee, Alabama, so take your news car and as the one woman band, go over and do the story. I said, great, fine. And I did no research. I did nothing other than to prepare myself, and I drove over. And had I been more serious, or had I thought about the significance of the interview, I would have done some work beforehand, but I didn't. And so when I went, I, I knew, as a journalist, I knew that I must focus on something that would interest people. And so her project at that point in 1988 was to emphasize to people the need to vote, the importance of voting. And so my story, I used a clip of where she talks about the importance of voting. On a journalism scale, it was a serviceable, serviceable report. It was functional. Had I done my research, I would have found out that Mrs. Parks was more of the mindset of Malcolm X than Dr. King. And I could have asked her to give the reasons, to give her viewpoints, to, to delve into that part of her activism. But I didn't know. And now I kick myself because if I had been the journalist to ask her why Malcolm, not Martin, it would be my interview clip that the world plays over and over and over when the docile appearing woman says militancy, not so meek, militancy over meekness. That would have been my work had I done a better job of journalism. And as a result of that, I did create a, a, research, a research technique that I now teach so that I will not let another opportunity to find, to find the information and put it out to the world so that uh, opportunity doesn't get away again. So uh, it was, meeting her was a momentous event of my life, the most momentous occurrence in my life. But for a journalism um, success, just mediocre. I was functional, 
I was not super. And the world is lacking the information because I wasn't super at my job that day. Yeah, it's really, I mean, she's a, um, she's not really polarizing, as you said. And from a marketing standpoint, uh, we timing is everything, right? If we talk about God links or what have you. Yeah. And so when, when I was just thinking in my head of, oh, we're going to interview Nita about, you know, what if Rosa Parks was alive today, it made me think of from a, a numerology standpoint, because mm-hmm. in the school of numerology, you don't really start looking at people until the age of 28. And so it was really interesting in college. I remember I had gone to Clark Atlanta. So I have okay. a very, uh, probably better than I guess a traditional American as far as the black studies, because we were right here in Atlanta. So when mm-hmm. most people would say, oh, Martin, Malcolm, they try to separate the two. There were so mm-hmm. much commonalities that are not in the, in the main media. And mm-hmm. so when um, in numerology after 28, there's periods of your life, like every nine years. And so it's just interesting of who you interview and where they are at that time. So uh, as we were driving over here to our conference room, David was like, well, we're talking about who we're going to interview next. And, I, and he had mentioned Malcolm Gladwell. So I, I do want to give a shout out to him because mm-hmm. he has a podcast. If you do not listen to it, it's called Revisionist History. And so oh, have you listened? Do you listen to it? I've heard of it. I have not listened. To it. I think you'll I think you'll really like it. Um, there's three seasons of it now. They just finished the third season. And mm-hmm. what's apropos to this conversation is the perception. And so mm-hmm. in one of his one of his podcasts, he was talking about Sammy Davis, Jr., Right. Okay. And Sammy Davis Jr. Um, in 1972, he had come out and he was he wasn't tongue kissing, but he was like really buddy, buddy, hugging Richard Nixon. And okay. Richard Nixon at the time was not family friendly or he was not friendly to the people to people of color. Right. Yes. And so people right. really ostracized Sammy Davis Jr. for mm-hmm. that. And he never really lived that down. And so mm-hmm. whenever people look at him historically, they're like, oh, that sellout, what have you. And so Malcolm Gladwell was making the correlation between, or trying to make the correlation between Sammy Davis Jr. and last year and currently Kanye West, right? Okay. And so you ask, well, what age are they, are you interviewing this person? Are they in their teens or their 20s or they're in their 30s? Because they're so different. Yes. You see where I'm getting at? I hear you. Yes, you're right. And so when historically we look at, I mean, because we're in January, we're about to go into Black History Month and all that, um, they always paint the picture of of Martin. I did a dream, which was 1964, but he died Mm -hmm. in 1968. And so a lot of the messages that he said afterwards were akin to a Malcolm X. They were a lot in the same mindset. Yes, yes. Of course, but when we talk about revisionist history, for one thing, that's why I was mentioning the book, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. In my schools in Augusta, Georgia, in public school, I did not know uh, Mrs. Parks was married. She was born Rosa McCauley. So so right there, my vision of her as, as I absorbed the lessons is that she was... A tiny little seamstress, spinster lady, church lady, rocking chair. No, she was a rebel from the age of eight. She attempted to hit a white boy with a brick because he pushed her. 
And so she took a brick and was going to do something with the brick. But some adults in the area stopped this from happening. And then Mrs. Park's grandma, Rosa McCauley's grandmother, told her, you can't attack white people because something is going to happen to you. You know, you'll be lynched, you'll be, you know, you'll face a, a terrible end if you don't stop trying to attack and, and get even with white people who might do something to you. And in her book, in uh, Rosa Parks' My Story, she says that that really hurt her to her heart, that her dear grandmother told her to be docile. But that's the lesson that I learned about Mrs. Uh, Rosa Parks, that she was a docile. No, she wasn't. Exactly. She really was. And as a matter of fact, when we hear she was a seamstress, she was a tailor, which means she could work on men's clothes. So she was an accomplished woman within her subset of work. Yes. I never had that uh, consciousness until recently, until my, my life here in France. Uh, Mrs. Parks was a, a media specialist. It was part of her job to make sure that white media knew what was happening in the black community. She had many skills beyond uh, knitting, sewing, and rocking in a chair, which is the way she was presented to me yes. uh, for my entire life. Yes. Uh, she, really, she really was remarkable. And even her grandfather, uh, from uh, her book, she talks about being a child and sitting up at night on the front porch in rural Alabama with her grandfather, who had his shotgun because the KKK had been burning homes and trees and crosses in their neighborhood. And she learned at age six to defend yourself. I, I never knew that. Yeah, there are, there are a, lot, a lot of things under, under the rug that when we have podcasts with people like you, they, they come to the surface. So, you know, thank you for your service in that as well. <laughs> Um, I do want to stay there for one second because, like you mentioned, all the all the things about her outside of the package that we didn't know about, um, mm. and, and education continues to evolve. So, you know, at the time, maybe it was perfect to do that. And it, it reminds me of an interview I had just recently watched with uh, Bill Duke. Um, he was on on Vlad, and he's in his seventies, and his. Uh, great-grandparents were slaves, right? And so he was just talking about the differences of then and now. And he had mentioned, uh, I hate to even talk about this now, but uh, hashtags, right? Because we live in social media. And he's like, if you do hashtags, there's still a huge issue of colorism uh, around the world, but specifically in America. And there's team light skin, team dark skin, and what have you. And the reason why I bring it up is, um, from my understanding, the packaging was... Rosa wasn't the only one that was asked to get up off the bus, uh, but because of the packaging of her being a seamstress and smaller and, and lighter complexion, it was easier from a package to actually get that out, get that message out there. And I don't know what your take is on that. <laughs> well, there, I just was reading on history.com this past week and I found three factual mistakes according to the research and the documents I've read. And so I stopped reading, and I sent an email to say, uh, you know, let's discuss this. I'm a Rosa Parks researcher, so let's get some of this cleared up. And so part of it is 
that the day that Mrs. Parks didn't get up and, and give up her seat, it was not a white passenger who said, you know, I want my place there. The bus driver, a man named James Fred Blake, said in, you know, Southern speak, y'all know I got to have those seats. And the other black people sitting on the same row that Mrs. Parks was sitting on got up and moved. She did not yield her seat to the bus driver. And the reason it was such a defiant act is that passengers knew bus drivers carried weapons. Bus drivers were armed. They were, they were packing. They had guns. And it was legal to, to have a gun. But when she decided she was moving, she was not refusing a white man's order. She was refusing the system that was trying to be carried out by an armed white man. So that is what Mrs. Parks did. It, it's much, to me, it's much bigger than a one-to-one refusal to yield. She sat down to show her discontent with the system. And even I was, I just pulled a quote from her and I'll, I'll read that for you. So uh, she said this in 1993 and I, I watched a video that uh, was the Essence Awards and on the stage she says, I pray that one day we would not have to be insulted, mistreated, and sometimes physically hurt and often killed because we just wanted to be free people. We will never go back where we were. And so when I, when I think of something like that, when that her conviction was just the insults must stop, treatment must stop, freedom for what I want to do must begin. Uh, to me, that is, is not necessarily what I was taught, but it resonates with many more people when we consider basic the facts of what she wanted, her basic desires. So, so I, I think it's important that we understand the motivation of people when, when they take a stand or when they refuse to yield. It's so much more than a one-to-one confrontation. It's to destroy and dismantle a system. And a lot of people don't think about this, but Emmett Till, unfortunately, his name is, is so well known, even in France, people know his name. But Emmett Till, the teenager who was, uh, the black teenager, who was kidnapped and killed and lynched, shot, any of things, you know, that was in August 1955. Mrs. Parks refused to yield her seat in December 1955. There was already an organization in place that was going to launch a boycott. When Mrs. Parks didn't move, according to her own writings, it was partly in response to what had happened to Emmett Till, the teenager. So she again was trying to uh, halt a system that was destroying people, that was mistreating people and killing people. Absolutely. Uh, that which leads to a two-part question to uh -oh. you, Anita. Yeah. 
As a journalist, I always wanted to talk to a journalist. A two-part question, right? <laughs> <laughs> so the first part is um, is Maya, uh, uh, man, I forget her name right now, author. And not, I was thinking Maya Rudolph, but I, I'm not talking about her. I'm talking about, I know why the cage bird sings, please. People are going to rake me through the cold. Maya Angelou. Okay. Thank you, Maya Angelou. They're going to rake me through the cold for that. And I know. I apologize in advance for people that see this. Um, so Maya Angelou wrote, I know why the cage bird sings. And she was talking mm-hmm. about Billie Holiday and herself in some level. of mm. When she went overseas, she was treated better than mm-hmm. she did in the States. And I know as we talk in 2019 and a little bit before that, both of my sisters, you know, they, they have their citizenship here, but it's highly unlikely that they would come back just because mm-hmm. the quality of life is just better in the way that they're treated. He, uh, over there is a lot better. And then the second part is, uh, if we look at it from a big picture and you're talking about systems, after slavery was over in the 18, after the 1860s, um, there was like, well, what are we doing with these people? We don't want them here anymore. You know, why don't they, it, we're a nuisance, right? And I'm bringing it to you because, from my understanding, uh, after World War II, Africans were huge people that had come to France and helped rebuild France. And now that France is rebuilt in other places in Europe, they want them to go home. And there's a lot of uprisings about that. And you're right in the middle of that. So you have a very specific viewpoint that I would love for you to share. <laughs> so the first part of it, you you asked about uh, if life is better in Europe than in America for for me, for my generation, for African-Americans. So I, I think that's the way that you're posing the question, right? That, that's one way to look at it, yeah. Well, for me, uh, I was born a journalist, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And for me to practice what I was born to do at the highest level, I had topped out in the United States. Right. I reached my dream, but then that window started closing. And so for me, at this stage of my life, the most important thing for me to do professionally is to teach journalism and to teach to a worldwide audience, uh, people who come from the, the worldwide diaspora. I have this year, nine years now teaching, I have eclipsed 1,000 students. So if each of those 1,000 takes one little thing that I said, then there is a possibility that I have best selves. Oh, wow. Okay. Hey, Nita, can you hear us? Yes, yes. Oh, perfect. Um, we, we were having, you. we had lost you on our end at the port that we're using in the conference room, and now we're back, so good. Okay, great. Okay, Sorry good. We she actually lost you for about five minutes. She might have not even noticed. <laughs> she didn't notice. She probably solved the world's problems, and we thought we had to call you back. <laughs> Well, it's that intrinsic motivation that had me had me going. <laughs> Absolutely, I love it. I love it, man. I'm really now we have to look back at it and get your answer. <laughs> well, well, all right. Well, what I was saying, the conclusion of it is that it is a, re- a remarkable fact of 
of Rosa Macaulay's life that her grandparents were born into slavery, but that her mother, Leona Macaulay, was, was able to get education, and the mother of Rosa Parks became a teacher, and then um, uh, and was living a comfortable life. But then that is exactly when the Jim Crow laws were, were written to, to slow people down, to back people up, to stop that forward progress. So, so uh, Rosa McCauley, as a little girl, saw many things. She knew of the suffering of her grandparents, because I've read her quotes about this. She saw the opportunity her mother created by becoming an educated person. And now Rosa McCauley herself did not finish uh, junior high and she did not finish high school because her grandmother became ill and it was the custom for a, a female child to stay home in, in a case like that. So uh, Rosa McCauley didn't finish high school, but Mrs. Rosa Parks got her equivalency after Raymond Parks, her husband, suggested she go and get an equivalency to um, a high school education. What they did at the time back then, it's not the same as our GED today, but she took advantage of those opportunities because she knew of them and, and knew they were important. Nita, you know, I can imagine that Rosa couldn't have known how things were going to play out um, on that December day when she made that decision. When you were interviewing her, did you get a sense or did you ask her how did how did she feel about being a symbol of the civil rights? Yes, I did ask her, not on camera, but when we were talking before the ceremony, I, I asked, um, did you realize what you were doing, what you were starting? And she said, no, I was just tired. And then she kind of clarified, she says, not that my feet were hurting, she says, but I had made up my mind to not give in to legal racism anymore. So she just drew the line in the sand, then the rest of the world caught up with her. You know, that, I think that's a really good part, especially, you know, in 2019, uh, as he passed away a couple of years ago, I re uh, when Prince passed away a couple of years ago, I remember when I, I was actually in the Atlanta University Center in the, in the mid-90s, and people like Prince and some other celebrities that are still living, they donated a lot of money to historically black colleges, but they didn't want the fanfare that went along with it. They were just like, this is what I want to do. And in 2019, there's more of a, uh, like the, I'll make a joke of it, of, mm -hmm. fa of Facebook. If I didn't show a picture that I worked out, did I really work out today? <laughs> you know, and, and so there is one level of uh, how much moving forward of how we can even imagine, especially you working with uh, Rosa Parks and other people of, of definite distinction, how much of it has to be broadcasted to have an effect. I know it's um, it's it's a terrible situation that we have. Some people feel they have to capture it for it to have been real. But um, in, in another way, let, let's turn it around a little bit. I had the good fortune to visit the uh, Montgomery, uh, no, the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. 
and I was talking with the tour guide, and after the tour, she mentioned that there was currently a campaign to raise money for a statue of Dr. King in Montgomery. And she says, there is no statue of him in Montgomery. Now, uh, then I checked online, there are statues in several places across Europe, and I don't have the list clear in my head at the moment, but not in Montgomery. And so uh, to me, like the Facebook photograph, I think there needs to be proof of, in, in the form of a statue to show that Dr. King did something and he did a lot of it there in Montgomery because that he is not recognized in a statue in Montgomery is not an oversight. It is an intentional act. There is an obstacle. And the tour director said this, said as much there, you know, there's this holdup in some parts, in some communities in Montgomery that does not want a statue of Dr. King. Now, when I was in Montgomery for that particular visit, my uncle there showed me a statue of one of the Confederate uh, physicians, but he was a physician who did medical procedures on enslaved women without any form of anesthesia. And his statue is right there front of the state house in Montgomery. So, so sometimes there needs to be a tangible uh, form of something. Sometimes we have to have a tangible form. We need a statue. No, I agree with you. When you, when you thank you for that answer. I agree with you on that aspect. Uh, it made me think of the movie Doctor Strange. I don't know if you watch any Marvel comics, but it's... No. A, <laughs> <laughs> and Stanley just passed away, so and they filmed a lot of those um, movies here in Atlanta, so we have a strong tie to it, uh, just okay. for the film industry. But many people don't know that, uh, like you were saying, if we don't have that something tangible, then they can get away with creating that superhero from Doctor Strange in that movie, uh, who was actually taken from the historical figure uh, Pascal. Um, I can't remember his last name right now, but he was actually the first or recognized as the first black metaphysician in the United States uh, who started, uh, he brought the Rosicrucians and all of them here. And he looks a lot like Dr. Strange. He, he was of mixed heritage, but you know, as you know, with that one drop role, he was considered black here in the uh, States. Yes. And so yeah. when people watch that movie, they have no association with that. And, and we see that in, in generationally of, uh, of not having something tangible. So then if we don't have something tangible, we're not sharing those stories, then they can be commandeered into a different uh, agenda that's not mm. accurate. Yes, but what, what, what you were saying about uh, destroying buildings and, and preserving, uh, preserving heritage, historically black schools and, and things like that, uh, two things, I don't know that we could talk about both of them, but you know, there is uh, the Rosa Parks house, and uh, a lot of people may not know about this. I only heard about this maybe two years ago. But after she left uh, Montgomery and, uh, and Tuskegee and she left the Alabama area, she lived in Detroit for almost 50 years. And so she followed her brother, Sylvester, 
who had left Alabama seeking a better job, a better job opportunity in Detroit. So when Mrs. Parks moved there, she followed him, Sylvester, and she and her husband and her mother moved into the house that Sylvester Macaulay was, uh, was living in, had owned. And get this now, there were 17 family members living in a two-story house, and it was on South Deacon Street. But they were living in this home because there was not enough housing stock available for African Americans, and neighborhoods were segregated. That house was slated to be torn down about 8,000 houses in Detroit. But it so happens that an artist named Ryan Mendoza bought the house. And Mendoza, he's an American, but he was living in Germany. So he transported the house to Berlin. And the house was on display in Berlin for a number of years. And then he had the idea, now that the home is restored, let's bring it back to America. Let's set it on the White House lawn next to the garden started by Mrs. Michelle Obama. The only problem is that by the time Ryan Mendoza had created his plan, uh, President Trump was in office. <laughs> so it has not quite happened yet that the restored Rosa Parks home has been, um, it's not, it's not uh, confirmed yet what, where the Rosa Parks home will end up. But it's one of those things that is important in our history. And even the artist, he says, he says how is it that nobody in America decided to do something about this home, to protect this home? And he said that the home really is the metaphor for Mrs. Parks. She was in Alabama, and she was unprotected. You know, the grandfather with the shotgun, KKK, the death threat. She goes north, as did many African Americans, and life there still was not good enough. So the Rosa Parks home then goes to Berlin. It's rescued by Europe. And the artist wants nothing more, wants nothing more than for the home that symbolizes Mr. Parks to be welcomed back in America. Mm. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens with that. Um, but, but to me, it's that story, the way you and I started out the conversation. I'm in Europe because what I was doing in America ran its course. There, there was no more wiggle room for me to succeed, for me to move forward in what I dream of doing. So maybe like the, like the Rosa Parks home, who knows where I'll end up. Yeah, I think it's, it's huge, Nita, you're talking about that. And that's where I was, you know, it was kind of tongue in cheek about, you know, which person do you interview as far as like Rosa Parks? Or, or anyone for that matter, do you interview them, going back to the numerology example, do you interview them when they're 25? Do you interview mm -hmm. them when they're 45? Do you interview them when they're 85? And what's happening now is uh, two things here in the States. Um, one, uh, over this past week, 
they released the documentary for R. Kelly. And so, you know, they were talking about um, a lot of a lot of things that are happening under the table that are now being brought to light. And it was like, well, how come people didn't know about it then? Did they know about it and didn't talk about it? And then the other side is um, with these in the 90s, you had these three strikes law. So you had a lot of people in jail for 20 plus years and they're now they're getting out. And if they were big drug dealers and things like that, and now they're, you know, 50 something, they're going back into those communities that they decimated and they and those areas are gentrified. And they're like, wow, I had all this money and I, this could have been a totally different area. And now there's they don't own anything and that area is decimated. So right. it's just really interesting as far as um, what, what we're sharing is there's probably just not a lot of community type uh, communication going on. For example, my my uncles, I hated it at the time, but they used to put me in a headlock a lot when I would come around with the music I thought was hip and new at the hip hop at the time. And they were like, they just sampled so and so. And so I had a greater appreciation for jazz and music before me just because I had that relationship with family members. And from a larger scale, I don't, I don't think that's happening. So when you give that example of the Rosa Parks house happening outside the United States, it's sad, but it makes sense. Right. And, and as, as um, Ryan Mendoza asks, he says, when can Rosa Parks figuratively return to the United States? Nita, are you familiar with uh, Claudette Colvin? Of course, yes. Yes, I, and I was just wondering, did, uh, did, did she know Rosa Parks or did Rosa Parks know her? Yes, because we've probably all heard that uh, Claudette Colvin was a teenager uh, when she was thrown off of the bus, even before Mrs. Parks was thrown off the bus. And uh, Claudette, and I'll call her Claudette because I'm referring to her during her childhood, Claudette was one of the teenagers who would go to Mrs. Parks for training in civil disobedience. Uh, we, we, we know that Mrs. Parks had no children. She and Raymond were, were childless, or I say child-free, <laughs> but they were uh, child-free, but uh, uh, Mrs. Parks often had the young people in their home in the Parks family home to train them in civil disobedience. And yes, Claudette, as a teenager, was one of them. Because the age difference. Mrs. Parks was 42 years old when she was arrested. And Claudette Colvin was 15 years old when she was arrested. And the arrest of the teenager was nine months before Mrs. Parks' arrest. So, yes, they, they all knew each other. And I, I do like mentioning that there are some other women in Montgomery and who were part of this bus movement who just don't make it to the history books. Like, for example, Aurelia Broder, or we could say Aurelia Browder, B-R-O-W-D-E-R. In the lawsuit Browder versus Gale, that is the lawsuit that... Uh, Fred Gray, Thurgood Marshall had pursued that went to the Supreme Court that struck down segregated seating on the buses. And currently, the son of Aurelia Browder is trying to make sure his mother's role is part of the story of Montgomery. 
uh, our teachers, our history books, our reporters, we like to talk about one figure to symbolize a movement. But Mrs. Browder and four, actually a total of four women, were part of the lawsuit. Now, there's also a Claudette Colvin was also part of that lawsuit. There are four names on Browder versus Gale, and Gale was the city commissioner, the head of the government of the city at the time. And it was only with the, with the successful outcome of the lawsuit that the buck boycott was called off. Fred Gray and Thurgood Marshall, other attorneys, had conferred, and they said, yes, Montgomery businesses have a problem with our boycott. They want us back. They want to treat us better. But the attorneys said, unless the law changes, we will return to the same insults and mistreatment. So when I talk about Mrs. Parks, I also need to say that other women were involved. And then even there's a woman, Joanne Robinson, who was one of the organizers of a boycott that was being uh, put in place before Mrs. Parks was even arrested. And then one other woman, Septima Clark. It's Septima Clark. And she was an educator. And when the bus boycott organizers needed to send out flyers, Ms. Clark went to her school and photocopied uh, so that they would have brochures and all that printed. She was risking not only the end of her teaching career, but just many other negative things could have come her way if anyone had tied her to the spread of the flyers that talked about the boycott. So these people, uh, they just happen to be women, but these are people who don't get discussed even though they have such a significant part play or played such a significant part in the success of the boycott, which changed the accommodations on our transport systems. So I do want to check in with you because we are at that hour point, but I mean, I don't know the next time we'll get to have Nita Wiggins on. So if you don't mind staying on a few, extra, I just have a couple of extra questions, if you don't mind. Oh, of course. I'd love to continue talking. Fantastic. Thank you for saying that. I'd love to. Absolutely. Uh, well, two, two parts again. Um, one <laughs> okay. thing, I, I do want to give another shout out to Malcolm Gladwell. I think you will highly, highly enjoy uh, listening to their Revisionist History podcast. He does interview uh, an educator. Um, it was 50 or 60 years after uh, Brown versus Board of Education. And, and mm -hmm. they asked the young lady, I can't remember her name now, that, you know, what did she think? She was there right at the beginning. And she had given an answer that probably wasn't the uh, nice bow, gift wrap answer, <laughs> uh, just based off what you were saying as far as unsung, unsung um, heroes that mm. you've been highlighting. Uh, but you were talking about these boycotts, and economically, it put a dent into the travel system, as you so highly uh, stated. And this week, uh, this week, Ted, uh, I believe his name is uh, Cook, Tim Cook, who is the CEO of Apple, had come out with their uh, numbers of last quarter and they didn't meet expectations. And they mm. didn't meet expectations because of the trade wars that we're having with China right now. 
And because of those boycotts, they didn't make their numbers and the technology sector had pretty much stumbled. So we on the world scale, we recognize that we do need to work with China. We realize an example that you gave when we got together and banded together, we were able to boycott and economically make a huge impact on the systems back then. Mm -hmm. uh, you think as far as uh, economic sanctions or economic solidarity, what part does that play uh, as people listen to this podcast, learn about the, the, the messages about Rosa Parks and uh, community outreach as a whole? Right. And uh, spending your dollars in your community. And I, I have to mention Medgar Evers. Uh, and for me, it was a surprise that my very woke uh, diaspora friends in France did not know uh, Medgar Evers. And I'm talking friends from Guadeloupe and other uh, primarily black countries or even African countries. But, you know, the success of what Medgar Evers was doing by, as an NAACP field director in Jackson, Mississippi, by telling people if they could not, by telling black people, if they could not work at a particular shopping center or particular store, then that's not the place to go buy something. And that if that particular customer were called boy or girl instead of Mr. or Miss, then that also is a place to not buy something. So, yes, I am for the idea of if my treatment or my group's treatment is not up to par, if it's not professional, then I don't choose to be a customer there. And I agree when people decide to take their dollars elsewhere. What I found out about a community here in France, and I don't know the name of the community, but one of my left-leaning friends told me that there are some places in France where business people have created their own currency, which simply means a bookstore owner, a coffee shop, a grocery store, maybe, the, the people who live in that community can circulate their own currency at the businesses that accept the currency. Now, why, why is that useful in our modern times? Because there's no taxation. When businesses, business owners accept the exchange that, that's coming from others, it works just fine. And so, yes, I, I do believe that uh, spending our money um, in a place that we respect, it's that whole corporate responsibility idea. If a corporation is not meeting my goals or my ideas, why, why am I supporting what that business does? Why am I enabling the continuation of something that might be contrary to my interests? So yes, I'm for that. We had two two examples that comes to mind last year. One was, and this one was kind of touchy to me, just because uh, I know people of all walks of life, as I'm sure you do, and I know um, white people call their kids monkey and all that, right? My little monkey. And, but from this standpoint, H&M got in a lot of trouble when they used that black kid and called him the king of the the monkey, king of the jungle, or something like that. Do you remember right. that last year? Yes. And, 
And they actually had to close a lot of stores. We, I mean, they had what the equivalent of some economic sanctions that really shut them down last year. And the other one that comes to mind is uh, Starbucks when those uh, two gentlemen were arrested in Philadelphia. And that was really strong here in Atlanta because I had family that was graduating from Spelman. And the C-level uh, person that was the PR person for Starbucks after that, she was also a Spel Spelman alum. And she was chosen to speak at, at their graduation. <laughs> there was a lot of backlash of, you know, what is our, what is our position with some of these companies? And you, we talked about it a little bit about the glass ceiling that you may sometimes face and then looking outside of becoming a global citizen as a result. So I, I guess that, that fight will continue on in 2019 and beyond, um, beyond of what maybe Rosa Parks thought about or maybe what we even can imagine. Oh, uh, yes, of course. And when you mentioned Facebook, there was the NAACP's campaign, hashtag get out Facebook. And that was in result uh, as a result of um, of the the Senate report, the U.S. Senate report that showed Facebook allowed marketers to to be very invasive with uh, people of color and and dig deep into their profiles and and from the research I did, it said that of 33. A particular uh, account that were designed to uh, that false accounts that over half was targeting the cut the customers or Facebook friends of color uh, with the particular idea to either find out how people of color were voting or to sway them in a particular way and so the NAACP launched a campaign that's Facebook now, I launched a campaign myself against Facebook in 2009. And you might remember that somebody posted a poll on Facebook and it asked, should President Obama be assassinated? And Facebook left that survey online throughout the weekend. And then Monday, maybe even Tuesday, took that survey off of Facebook. So what I did as a result, I emailed my friend contact from A to Z, from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe, where I have my personal and my business network. And I said, we gotta get off of Facebook. We have to show Facebook that material like that not only doesn't belong, but that it is uh, on the border of hate speech, it's on the border of uh, calling for a crime or inciting some type of violent negativity. This was 2009. This was President Obama's first summer. And we still today have problems where on Facebook, uh, the, the management is not making the right decisions to to, what do we say, to curate what is posted. That has to stop. Now that said, final, I'll close with this though, to sum up that answer. I've created a program and it's called Listen to Others, but it's just a, an exchange. It's a framing in dialogues how somebody who's not affected by a particular issue 
will decide to actively listen to somebody else's story, somebody who has a different experience and can explain why she feels a certain way or lives a certain way or makes a certain decision. But unless we listen to others, we're not going to know. We, we will encounter people and we will assume we know. We don't know. And, and so that, to me, might be one of its remedies. Instead of having to engage in boycotts, why don't we start to understand? Why don't we take steps to understand? And then we can all get along better. Uh, which it, it actually leads me to my last question. So are you familiar with the documentary Where to Invade Next? I've heard of it, but in France, I have not yet been able to find it. Uh, I can't. I can't watch it online in France, but I do know about it. Yeah, I know my sisters. They always use some types of proxies so they can see. Uh, there is a lot of. Um, <laughs> okay. There's a lot of. Uh, it seems like we have more freedoms here with what we have access to as far as information. But um, if you do get access, I don't want to talk about proxies and all that. They get this video <laughs> taken down. <laughs> um, but I did like how you were talking about from a, a, a global community standpoint. And it, it's a tongue-in-cheek documentary by Michael Moore, and he highlights, you know, where to invade next. And it was tongue-in-cheek as to what are we taking from other countries to make America great again type of deal. And so mm. he looked at places like Paris. Uh, he looked at places like Italy, looked uh, across Europe and some, um, I think, in the Caribbean as well, as far as quality of life um, and overall well-being across cultures. And okay. so... It was really good. I know we were highlighting Rosa Parks, but if we look at from a global community and like you said, listen to others, um, everyone really appreciates when they feel that they have a voice that is being listened to. And then we could probably grow exponentially from that as opposed to being distracted by um, distractions that are in front of us if we're pitted against each other. Mm, okay, you're right. Yes, uh, we are in total agreement on that. Yeah, we, we don't have to have factions when we have understanding. We won't have as many of these factions that we do have. So I lied about that last question. I have just one last one. Uh, <laughs> for closing, I'd like for you to, because we, we, you uncovered a lot, and, and it was I really appreciate the time that you spent with us. And I'd like to, for you, uh, one, to highlight your book, how people can get in touch with you and all that. But I also like for you to do a kind of a, a uh, I'm thinking of when you're looking to get hired and you, you used to carry a brag book from like letters of recommendation you got from other people and such. Okay. And so I'd like for you to do a little bit of a quote unquote brag book of a timeline. You interviewed Rosa Parks in 1988 and how her position was in 1988. And then we posited what would it be like if she was around in 2019. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about some of the other um, leaps and bounds that we've accomplished in the last 20 plus 30, 30 years, and where do you see us going? Okay, and when you say us, you're talking about the, the movements, the ideals that, that talk, I have. I think it's more ideals because like Rosa couldn't imagine sitting with you in 1988 and how far she had come. And, and how far we globally have come um, 
since 1988, even you being in Dallas and thinking that was going to be your swan song and it's not all these years later, um, I, I would like to look at it from an ideal standpoint because I don't think we can really foresee tactically how it would happen. <laughs> okay, well, sure. Uh, so the, the thing to, to, to start with, though, in 1988, when I talked to you about that lingering hug, I think she did see that something was happening because if she had noticed I got out of a news car I was the driver you know I drove the car a nice uh, four-wheel drive a trailblazer kind of thing I had expensive camera equipment with me and maybe when she saw all of the, uh, the accoutrement all those things that I had at my disposal not because I need a witness, but because I was a person functioning in a news organization, I think she did see that things were going to be better. And and have things gotten better? Ugh. I I I when I wake up, I have to tell myself that yes, my coffee cup is half full, not half empty. When I'm starting to drink my coffee, but there there's also a uh, uh, a mixture of of how I see what has happened to our country since 1988. Like, okay, Mrs. Parks developed dementia. And so at the time of her death in 2005, she had, she probably had n no knowledge that Barack Obama had spoken at the Democratic Convention in 2004. And she probably had no no idea that he would become president of the United States. So that she probably saw media opportunities and that women of color were able to, to take a few steps beyond what her generation could do. She may not have seen how vast the, the reach or how deep the reach would go into politics. But um, successes. Uh, well, let, let me talk about Nancy Pelosi. This is going to kind of open up the conversation a little bit. Okay. When, when Nancy Pelosi was elected to Congress in 1984, the only women who had been there in Congress before were either the widows of male uh, members of Congress or the wives of members of Congress who were ill. When, when Nancy Pelosi was elected, she was elected on her career. And the other part of her career is that though she grew up in Baltimore and her father was mayor of Baltimore, her brother was mayor of Baltimore, Nancy Pelosi was elected from a district in California that includes San Francisco. So we could say that uh, that is a milestone that, that follows part of what Rosa Parks was working toward. That here's a woman who is elected, and she's elected on her own merit. And that was 1984. And so then what year was Geraldine Ferrara? Oh, wow. Vice presidential nominee for the Democratic Party obviously didn't win right so so there are movements, there are movements for women and and uh, non-white men sure 
But in my area, the news business, we still have such a small percent, and I don't have the number in front of me, but, oh, 12, 15% of news director positions uh, at um, newspapers are held by women. You know, some very depressing numbers, just minuscule numbers. So media representation, media management is not where it needs to be. It has increased, but not where it needs to be. And my answer is coming from everywhere, but let me throw out one more kind of fact that I do have clear in my head. When I attended a broadcasting convention, it was the Radio and Television News Directors Association National Meeting in 1989 of the 104 television stations that were being discussed. There was only one African-American woman who was the news director. So that's 1989, one year after my meeting Rosa Parks. One African-American woman was in a position of directing a news organization of, of the 104 stations that were involved. So politics is moving uh, at a faster pace than, uh, than the media. And, and I have an explanation. When you control the message, you control the power. That's true. <laughs> it's just weird listening. I mean, and, and, I, and I do believe we live in a bubble here in Atlanta. Or, yeah, Atlanta, because there's, there's Atlanta and then there's Georgia. But mm. here in Atlanta, I mean, we have black male and female newscasters from all, all not just sports or the weatherman. So I think we're, we're kind of used to it. And then when we leave Atlanta, we kind of see the numbers that you're talking about. So, yeah, um, funny, funny thing. I was a sports reporter in Dallas and the Dallas Mavericks basketball team won the championship the year that I left or either the year after I left in 2009. So I was in Paris and I thought, oh, this is great. I like the coach. I like some of the players who are still there. I will watch the celebration parade from my seat here in Paris. When I turned on my channel, KDFW Fox 4, my former employer, as there, there, there was a group of seven anchor men and women on the news set. Usually you have four people. They had seven men and women on the news set saluting the basketball championship. Everyone was white. We know black people don't know basketball. <laughs> now, how, how does that happen? How, how, how were all of the people of color sick? <laughs> <laughs> so again, when you control the message, you control the power. And so maybe that's why the Gene, uh, getting uh, more uh, influence from a variety of people who are listening to others. Maybe that's why that is so hard to happen in the media. Yeah. But, you know, my book, I do hope that my book will take that. You, yes. you mentioned the book is called Civil Rights Baby. My story of race, sports, and breaking barriers in American journalism. And it is exactly for what you just asked me in that last question. There is just a blockage, even when people have the qualifications 
there's just um, there there are not enough opportunities where the person who presents himself or herself uh, gets through the the wall. Yeah. Um, oh, and one other thing I, I do want to talk about in the um, that word to invade next. They did highlight just the, the fact that so many students are graduating with so much debt that where to invade next, they were highlighting all these other countries that are, they have their arms open for Americans to come and get their education overseas. And then they, they can have that worldview that, that you have, Nita, and that may actually you know, change some of the, the uh, perspectives as well. I would, one person I would think of from a sports analogy standpoint would be Kobe Bryant. You know, his a lot of his formative years were in Italy. So, you know, his matriculation through the NBA was a lot different than someone that only had limited exposure outside of their city or town. Um, so we yes. are we do want to focus globally, and and that 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 documentary will highlight that for you if you haven't seen it yet. Yes, I am going to watch. I have lots of documentaries to watch this year because there is a lot of good work that's being done uh, with uh, a lot of diversity, actually, in the director's chair. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And where can they find your book, Nita? Well, my website is nitawiggins.com. Mm -hmm. There's a link to the book, and the book will be available through Amazon and through my publisher, and my publisher is Casa Express Editions. And the book is imminent release, though I don't have a release date yet. Well, we'll, well, we'll probably have to have you back on when it's out. <laughs> I could do that, yes, I'd love it. Awesome, well you have been in tune to another episode of Intrinsic Motivation from a Homie's Perspective. This is Hansa. And I am David. And Nita, it was a pleasure, let's definitely stay in touch. Absolutely. Thank you for your time. I enjoyed both of you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Go Eagles. <laughs> <laughs>